Well, good morning. It is such a great joy and honor to be standing here before you this morning, attempting to fill the shoes of a man I find quite extraordinary. It is always customary when you are a guest in another man's house to show honor. Now, how can I show honor to Pastor Cole Huffman? I find that pastors are a dime a dozen, many of which are more impressed with themselves than I fear the kingdom of God is with them. And yet, in your pastor, I find a type of humility that can only be forged in the crucible of suffering that produces faithfulness, holiness, and godliness. In short, your pastor smells like Jesus. And it is a great honor for me to stand here this morning, Pastor. Thank you. To First Lady Lynn, we are grateful for your family. Where I'm from, that's what we call the pastor's wife. <laughs> we are grateful for your investment in your family and your husband. And I would be remiss if I did not show honor to my own bride, Courtney, who is down here in front looking as good as a plate of yams with extra syrup. (laughs) He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Amen. Amen. If you have your copy of God's word, would you meet me in Luke, the 10th chapter? Luke chapter 10. This morning will be in a very familiar pericope, verses 25 through 37. The Gospel of Luke, the 10th chapter, verses 25 through 37. I have the wonderful privilege of being a pastor preaching at Fellowship Memphis, just across the way here. And each week as we get to this point, as we're awaiting each other to arrive at the address of the given scripture, it is customary for me to say, if you're there, say, oh yeah. If you need some more time, say, hold up, brother. Okay, that was about two of you, so we shall proceed. (laughs) And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor. Someone say neighbor. As yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Someone say neighbor. Neighbor. Jesus replied, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Someone say neighbor. To the man who fell among the robbers. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. And before considering it, we should pray. So let us pray. Guide us this morning, great Jehovah, into the places that will most radically change us. Grant us entrance into that place whereby we might gaze upon your beauty and be struck in awesome terror. Father, lead us into your presence. Lead us into your heart. Jesus, I ask that just as you told Nicodemus, That unless men come to you, unless you be born again, that we shall not see the kingdom of God. Would you be lifted high this morning that by gazing upon your person and work, we might find inward transformation. And Holy Spirit, you are the hand that penned the words on these pages. Would you be our God and our interpreter this morning, Lord? Might you, Father, Trinity, be glorified, might your people be edified, and this morning would the enemy be horrified. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I was on my hands and knees cleaning Ray's toilet when I realized something profound. Ray was a member of a house church that Courtney and I helped to establish right after we got married. And Ray was a sweet and gentle soul who, unfortunately, his mind had melted due to overuse of illicit drugs. Ray had hit the 80s hard, even donning at one point in time long blonde hair, much like flock of seagulls, piercings and tattoos to go along with his preferred choice of hair metal bands. Paul says, I became all things to all people. And so what I began to do was to bond with Ray over 80s hair rock, white snake and deaf leopard and poison, quiet riot, and of course, kiss. And when I first met Ray, he was homeless. He was Jobless and without hope, Ray came to our church. We became friends. And at one point in time in our friendship, he asked, hey, Pastor Cook, will you help me clean my apartment? 
I believed it to be somewhat of a menial task at that time for a pastor, and yet I consented. And I went and purchased the appropriate material needed to clean one's apartment. But when I walked into his apartment, I was struck by the filth. Ray lived in Section 8 housing, the ninth floor in a part of Birmingham that was known for homelessness, vagrancy, and prostitution. When you walk into Ray's house, your feet stick to the floor. It looks like he spilled gallons of soft drinks and they dried on the floor, leaving a congealed mess that traps every speck of dirt that blows into that apartment. Dishes lined and filled his sink and his countertop so much so that tiny little roaches began to crawl among his apartment. When I opened his refrigerator to clean it out, there was black mold that hit me in my face. His living room, sparsely decorated with a chair here, a broken down table there, was also filthy. And his bedroom was infested with bedbugs. And when I saw his bathroom, my stomach turned as I saw human waste strewn all over the place. In this moment, it was there on my hands and knees, embarrassed, put out taken aback and disgusted, not only with the situation, but where it had led me. I, after all, was a pastor. Why am I on my hands and knees cleaning this man's toilet? But it was there that I realized a very profound truth, that even Jesus wasn't above washing feet. And that Ray himself is a human being. He is my neighbor. He's not a problem to be solved, an issue to be remedied, a nuisance to be dealt with. No, he's a human being. He is my neighbor. I'm ashamed to say that even I, as a pastor, can lose sight of those three truths that Jesus Wash feet that Ray is a human being and that human being is my neighbor. In short, what Ray taught me was the simple truth without ever saying a word. He taught me this truth. I am your neighbor. This morning, friends, I hope with God's grace to expound upon that truth from a very well studied passage. We arrive in Luke 10, verse 25, after a series of passages concerning the true nature of discipleship. Jesus sends out the 72. They go out to perform the work of the ministry. They come back rejoicing that all of the spirits of the evil one are subjected to their labors. And yet Jesus says, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice instead that your name It's written in heaven. They found delight in the wrong things. And so Jesus begins to teach them and show them what it means to be a disciple. And as we turn here to this very popular passage, we find our first stop on this destination and journey this morning, which is the truth that true disciples love God And their neighbor. 
True disciples of Jesus love God and their neighbor. When Jesus is approached by this lawyer and he's asked the question, how might I inherit eternal life? Jesus responds by a mashup, by a melding of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19.6. In short, it's the same message that he gives elsewhere in the Gospels, notably in Mark chapter 12. When he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think it would be prudent to pause and consider what it means to love our neighbor. To love one's neighbor is not to love another as much as you love yourself. But it means that you must love another in the way that you would love yourself. The call is to behave toward the other with the same consideration, with the same care, with the same concern that we would ourselves. And then the lawyer has a moment full of himself asking Jesus a question because I presume he wants to know the difference between who is My neighbor and who is not. I'd like for you to look with me in verse 29. The lawyer responds to Jesus's answer by saying this, but he desiring to justify himself. Uh, He desired to make himself righteous. He desired to catch Jesus. He desired to show up Jesus. He desired to make himself right in his own eyes. All of this with the foundation that this man is trying to discern who is my neighbor. As a Jewish man, as a Jewish scribe, he undoubtedly in his mind probably has those who look like me are my neighbor. Other Jews, those who worship atop the temple mount in Jerusalem, they are my neighbor. He probably wants to abide by the letter of the law and not love those who don't look like him. You see, the Gentiles, particularly Samaritans, were well-chronicled enemies of one another. I grew up in the state of Alabama, much like your pastor. And I can remember being in first and second grade and kids quite literally fighting because of the outcome of the Iron Bowl. (laughs) Enemies. If you ever grew up watching cartoons, you understand the rivalry between Tom and Jerry, Coyote and the Roadrunner. Enemies. And yet, when we even consider the state of terrorism in our country and abroad, there is a quite literal enemy to the cross of Christ, not just unbelievers, but we might consider the enemy of ISIS, public enemy number one, enemies. This scribe, undoubtedly, is trying to define the clear racial limitations of whom is his neighbor. And he's so driven to follow the letter of the law, he wants to be absolutely sure that his neighbor is not the other, the half-breed, the unseeming, the Gentile. 
And then Jesus, like in all of his teachings, he never answers the question like we think he's going to. The man asks a question. Jesus tells a story. And in all of Jesus' teachings, what he does is he takes our basic understanding of what is basically necessary to attain faithfulness, and he ramps it up a notch. Adultery, in Jesus' words, is no longer just an act, but it's the thought of it. Coveting is no longer just an act, but the thought and motivation of it. When it came to the law and the Old Testament, Jesus finds faithfulness not to the law, letter of the law alone, but faithfulness is defined as being true to his father in the spirit of the law. In that vein, this lawyer is far away from the ethic of Jesus because a true disciple has a vertical and a horizontal allegiance. A vertical allegiance to love God as with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor horizontally as one's self. And to love God is to adore him with our words, to sing praises, to make melody in our hearts and public confession to him. Very much like we've done this this morning. And to love our neighbor is to be done as we love others in the way that we like to be loved. So Jesus answers his question with a story, a parable, in which we find the second point this morning, the second stop on our destination, is that religious people are also an at-risk group. Religious people are also an at-risk group. My mentor, who lives in Birmingham, Alabama, began a mentoring uh, nonprofit to young men and women in uh, underserved communities, predominantly minority communities. And what he does is he pairs the need of urban centers with the resources of suburbanites. He basically says that if these students are reading under grade level, if they're malnourished, if they live in a food desert, then he needs to pair them with the resources of those with greater means. He says, but there's one great enemy to effective urban ministry. And he says that one group tends to not look upon themselves as those who are at risk, but they tend to walk in, walk into areas as saviors. So how he has to frame this, instead of someone from a very resourced, wealthy community walking into an underserved community and saying, here we are, you need my help. You need what I have. Instead of that attitude, he says this. He says there are two at-risk groups in this work. The young man or woman who is at risk of falling behind in school, who's at risk of present hurt, harm, and danger, but the other at-risk group is those with comfortable lives. They're at risk of living insignificant kingdom lives. That the at-risk group for the largely religious community going into those neighborhoods is that they might miss the very insignificance of their lives when they fail to see their own blind spots. As we find this man who's happened upon these robbers as the priest and Levite are walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's important to remember 
that this road is fraught with danger and peril. It is treacherous and dangerous at every turn and a favorite route for stick-up kids, strong armors, and thieves. You could call this Highway 78. Or, or maybe even stretches of poplar inside the loop. You might even refer to it as the North or the South Parkway. And this priest, by chance, he's just happen, happening to go about his business. He sees a man in need, a man beaten to an inch of his life, a man rendered unconscious. And what does he do? He passes by on the other side. Why would he pass to the other side? Certainly his idea of the law is in mind, which says that if you come within a certain distance of a dead body, you yourself could be could be rendered ceremonially unclean. But if I get too close, then my proximity to him might affect me. Uh, maybe he was in a hurry and he didn't have time. Uh, perhaps he didn't lack the desire. We don't know his motivation, but what we do know is this priest most likely professed a love of God, that his external relationship with God, his external vertical relationship seems to be legit. And yet, that love of God does not translate into the care for those of common people. Of all people, this priest, this religious man should have understood what compassion was. If, I imagine, we could hear the words of this man lying half dead on the road, if we could hear him speak the words that we might hear him whisper as he watches the priest jump to the other side of the bypass. If we could hear, if he could talk, I imagine he would say to him, arm outstretched, I am your neighbor. But this, this this particular day is a lucky day for this man because not only does one religious spiritual man come by, but a second, a Levite happens upon the same man. This is this guy's greatest day. Imagine being stranded on the side of Highway 78 sometime, somewhere between Hamilton and Gwynn. It's dark outside, there's not much traffic, you've got a flat tire, your hazards are on, but you have no flashlight, and not one, but two cars come. They even slow down beside your car to see what's happening before they speedily and hurriedly zoom past. Here again, another religious man comes by, perhaps he passes by for the same reasons. It might incur some harm unto him, or perhaps It wasn't his job. It's not my job, so I'm not going to do this. Either way, the message here is clear that the religious and devout in this story fail the most basic test of discipleship, and that is compassion. If you could hear this man lying on the ground, If you could hear him speak to the Levite who jumps to the other side of the bypass with arms outstretched, with the last perhaps voice breath in his body, you would hear him say to that Levite, I am your neighbor. 
to show compassion means that you show sympathetic concern for the sufferings and misfortunes of others. Compassion. In Matthew 9, verse 36, when Jesus looks upon the masses, he says, they are like sheep without a shepherd, and he's moved to compassion. That word means that Jesus was moved deep within himself. When we say we love someone, the seat of our emotions is our heart. So when we say we love someone with all of our heart, that means we love them a whole lot. It would be odd then to say that I love you with my entire small and large intestine. But that word compassion means a movement of the bowels, not that kind, but a movement deep within oneself. The ancient Near East saw the seat of the emotions being the gut. And so this man, this priest and Levite lacks the basic visceral reaction. I imagine that to show compassion means recognizing first and foremost someone as possessing the image of God before we attribute them as a problem. That we see someone as being fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God before we assign blame. It means that quote-unquote problem people aren't issues to be addressed, problems to be solved, nuisances to get rid of, or projects to be fixed, but they are people first, religious people. People like me, my friends, are at risk of denying and not seeing the image of God in those who are in distress. I have to admit, when I'm there with Ray on his floor, I did not immediately see him as the image of God. I saw him as a man with problems in which I could fix. I treated Ray more like a problem, more like a project than I did my brother. And when we read the scriptures, it's easy to find our own ethnic makeup in the Bible. Well, we tend to read our own ethnicity onto the characters of the Bible, especially if that character is heroic. When I was a kid, I imagined Samson in the book of Judges to be a massive black man. My grandmother in her house had a picture of black Jesus hanging up. Black Jesus had long, good hair. He had beautiful eyes and perfect complexion. And even King David... As the young, ruddy man, who even his own father forgot about that King David, I made him in the image of myself. So we must be careful then, my friends, that we are not creating the paradigm in our minds where we see the priest and the Levite and the man laying on the road in our own image. But we must instead... Notice the ethnic differences and realize that we are not the heroes of the story. We're not the Samaritans. If anything, spiritually, we are the man lying dead on the road. And it's only in the work of Jesus Christ that we find compassion that transcends racial boundaries. 
This is the third point this morning. Compassion that transcends racial boundaries. When Jesus identifies the Samaritan man as a Samaritan, that's not a mistake. That's intentional. The Bible, friends, does have, the Bible has zero concept of race. You will not find the concept of race as we know it in the Bible because race is a socially constructed term, meaning that it was created and fashioned by humans in an attempt to lord it over others. The Bible doesn't know race. The Bible deals in ethnicity. So when we come to this place, we see a Samaritan. And furthermore, it's logical to conclude that the man laying half dead on the road is a Jew. Which makes the actions of the priest and the Levite even more egregious because the man lying half dead is one of them. This Samaritan, however, Jews considered to be half-breeds, dogs. They worshipped on Mount Gerizim instead of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Jesus legitimately sets up the least likely hero in this story. To win the day. And it was this unlikely hero who stopped, who had compassion, and he helped his neighbor out. This Samaritan stops what he's doing. He terminates his journey. He hops off his animal. He jumps down into the bloody mess, getting all of the bodily fluids upon himself. He incurs the seemingly harm to his reputation, a Samaritan man dealing directly with a Jewish man. Because in that moment, nothing else matters other than this man here in front of him. And if you could hear, my friends, if you could hear the words of that Samaritan, To that man lying dead in the street as he picked him up and cradled him in his arms and lifted him upon his own animal. What you might hear that Samaritan say to that man is, you are my neighbor. This is important because when it comes to reconciliation, it looks more like the activities of an unlikely hero in the Samaritan than it does the Likely suspected suspects. And we need to understand the actions of reconciliation here because reconciliation is more than a casserole. And don't get me wrong. I'll tell you what. It was only when I started hanging out with my white friends that I started to get church lady casseroles. (laughs) Y'all, when I tell you a church lady casserole, a breakfast casserole by a church lady... Man, some of y'all casseroles going to be served in heaven. <laughs> but reconciliation is not simply a handshake. It's not simply a hug. It's not simply a casserole. It's not a sympathy card in the mail. And it's not a post on social media. Reconciliation requires all of us to give all of ourselves to our neighbor. Consider what it costs the Samaritan to be a neighbor. It cost him his time. It cost him his money. It cost him his reputation. This is reconciliatory work. This is racial justice. 
This is a picture of the dividing wall of hostility truly being broken. And notice the Samaritan does not give a lecture as to why the man should not walk from Jericho or Jerusalem to Jericho at this time of day. You should not be walking here. The Samaritan doesn't stop and spit a a bunch of scripture at him as if to shame him in the midst of his distress. Because the only thing that matters to this Samaritan is to bring shalom to him. To bring wholeness, to restore what was taken. And he picks him up and he puts him on his donkey and then he walks with him to the inn and then he pays his Wait, when I study this passage, my friends, I can't help but to see myself as the man lying on the road. That I was dead in my sins and trespasses. And a Jewish man, a brown-skinned Jewish man named Jesus came alongside and he gazed at my helpless estate. And he didn't pass by on the other side. But this brown-skinned Middle Eastern man picked me up and he tended for my wounds. Much like the words in Micah 6, 8, oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God? It is Christ who does justice, loves mercy and walks humbly with God. It is Christ who picked me up from the miry clay. It is Jesus who rescued me from destruction. It is Jesus who is the just and the justifier, the one who made me an enemy and made me his friend. In my cries for mercy, in my help and in my distress, Jesus cried out to me and said, you are my neighbor and my soul said yes. My story, friends, is the story of a man broken, desperately broken, in need of repair. And my neighbor saw my helpless estate and rescued me. That is the compassion of Christ. And as we come to the last verse here, fourth and finally, Jesus at this point, he doesn't shame the priest and the Levite. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't even shame the lawyer for asking the question. Because I believe Jesus understands the truth that there is no such thing as a stupid question. What does he simply encourage the lawyer to do? He says, go and do likewise. I want you, my friends, to realize That legalism is not only seeking to justify oneself, but legalism is quite literally practicing Christianity without Christ. Legalism says that I can make myself clean. I can do these things to make myself righteous. And Jesus says, even in your best deeds, you could not do what I did for you long ago on that cross and in my resurrection. In this work of ethnic conciliation, many would say reconciliation requires is a is a bringing back to one another. It's a bringing back into right relationship. But for many intents and purposes in our nation, we have never truly been together. In order for ethnic conciliation to be the case, compassion must rule the day. And not only compassion, 
but grace must rule the day. In Jesus' response to this lawyer, I find such grace. A grace that does not condemn, a grace that does not say, hey, you got this wrong, you should pay, but a grace that says, go and do likewise. When I think back on those moments of cleaning Ray's toilet, the embarrassment, the loss of my reputation, a nationally acclaimed speaker and a pastor cleaning toilets. When I think about the money that it costs me, the financial strain, the capital and the revenue. When I think about the potential harm incurred to me as black mole spores berated my face and I'm exposed to bed bugs. When I think about all of those things, I finally begin to scratch the surface to realize just how much loving someone who doesn't look like me costs. I begin to see that when we are seeking to love those who look different than us, those who maybe are the other, those who we don't share much culture, we don't share much commonality with, but when we seek to love them as Christ has loved us, I find there are few limits concerning what we will do in order that we might love our neighbor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that long ago you did not see me simply as a problem to be solved, but you saw me as a son needing salvation. Thank you that you came to me long ago. You opened my eyes to the darkness of my sin, and from that day forward you called me to a higher ethic, a higher level of love, far beyond what the law itself calls us to, but you have called me to compassion. Father, I fail in this place. Would you help me have Samaritan-like compassion? Would you allow me at every turn to fight to see the humanity in the Imago Dei in every man and woman that I encounter? And ultimately, Father, we look forward and we await the day when you will take all that's broken and make it right. And we look forward to that day in haste and in anticipation. We love you so much. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.